and uh, just all his time that he's uh, set aside to uh, give us the message. So Lord, uh, let that message come through clearly as you would uh, want us to hear and uh, guide his words, thoughts, and uh, let us as, uh, as the congregation just be uh, open and attentive. I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate your prayers, bro. All, all right. Um, we are going through a series, as I said earlier, called Expanding the Table, which we as a church believe is God's invitation to us to make more room, not only physically, but spiritually and emotionally, relationally, to people, to the other, to people that are different than us, to extend that table and all that that entails, all that uh, means and kind of uh, entailed in that is, is, is we are praying and believing for more and better disciples in authentic missional community uh, for the good of the world. And uh, so I want to start off by uh, telling you a story about this man. Um, some of you have read this book, The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun. Um, this was a man, he's still alive, I believe, in the world today. Uh, he was uh, severely persecuted and suffered for his faith in China. Spent a lot of times uh, separated from his family because of imprisonment. But he was not only imprisoned, but he was tortured and beaten uh, many times. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable story documented in this book, The Heavenly Man. And, uh, and yet in spite of all of that suffering, he... he had these amazing encounters with God in the suffering that seemed to transcend the suffering. In other words, the suffering was there, but the suffering was what almost seemed diminished greatly by the, the power and the presence of God that was with him in the jail and through the torture and the beatings. And he had a, a remarkable supernatural deliverance where, just like Peter in the book of Acts, uh, remember how that angel turned the door, the jail doors into those Safeway doors that open automatically? That's kind of what happened to him, and he walked free. And he ended up in the West, supernaturally uh, escaped from China. And he visited North America, he visited uh, Europe, and he's actually met my son-in-law's family. He stayed in their home. Marcus brags about him having uh, stayed in his bedroom, stayed in his bedroom in Switzerland. So he is a real person. It's not just a fake story, fake news. And, uh, but what intrigued me most about uh, all the things he wrote was that he said that after he'd visited the West, he said that it is, his observation of the West is that it is far more difficult to be a Christian in North America than in China where he was. He, he was asked if he wanted to live here. He said, no, it's just way more difficult to be a follower of Jesus here. So what do you think he meant by that? You'd think, man, I don't want to be in a place where I might be imprisoned or tortured. or Like I read last year, still, even in Beijing, this massive church. You know, there's limited freedom, and this church was really growing. The, church, the, the growth of the church in China, I understand, is the fastest in church history. And there's this church in Beijing that had a huge cross on the top. And the Chinese government came in and, and uh, it was in the papers. I read it in the news. They actually uh, kicked the people out of the church. 
and uh, they destroyed the building. So, you know, imagine that happening to us. We come one Sunday morning and there's these padlocks in the door saying, there's, you know, you can't meet here anymore. But in spite of all that, he argues that it is actually more difficult to be a Christian here, to be a follower of Christ. And so no matter what uh, generation we are in, there are obstacles. I want you to think about right now, what is the greatest obstacle to you following Christ? What is the greatest obstacle in your life to you being a follower of Jesus? And as you hold that, as you think about that, and it may not be obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious. As we find by our text today, every community of Jesus of disciples since the birth of the church has had to face obstacles. It's, there have been barriers to following Jesus. In each generation, there's unique barriers that's put them under duress. And it's true of our day. It's true of the, and it's true of the audience to whom John addressed his gospel book. John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, is the author of this book by his name. He was an apostle, a pastor, a church planter, and a missionary. And he founded the communities, many, many churches, that were actually called by his name. They were called the Johannan Communities. Just like Pauline communities were named after Paul and, and Petrine communities were named after Peter. Uh, each of the apostles had, they were kind of like soft, soft-shelled uh, denominations. They weren't hardline denominations like we have today. But they, they were, they definitely were communities that were shaped by the personality of the apostles that uh, founded them. And so John had a whole network of communities that he was pastoring. And they were under a particular duress at the time that he wrote his gospel. Now remember this gospel was the last, this gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. It was written probably a whole generation later than any other gospel. It was written probably, you know, in, or some people say as late as 90 AD. Most of the other gospels have been written a generation sooner. And it's like John said, oh, wait a minute, before I die off here, I better put this to record here. And he wrote his gospel, and he said, there's so many stories that you guys need to hear yet. But he also had an, a reason for writing these stories. His communities that he had pastored were under duress. They were under persecution. But it was a particular kind of persecution. It wasn't like the persecution that the Chinese experienced in China under the communist government. It wasn't even like the persecution that some of the Christians in other parts of the Roman Empire experienced, which was from the Roman government. There was, there was Roman persecution under Nero and those kinds of persecutions. But the persecution that this community was experiencing was religious persecution. It was persecution because they were being regarded as heretics. They were coloring outside the lines. And they were being excommunicated from the communities of faith that they had grown up in, the synagogue. Many of these were Jewish Christians who were being rejected by their own families. 
I don't know if there's anything more painful than, than to be regarded as a heretic by your own family members. It's like a sword to your heart. And this is what happened with John, John's communities. And so they, they felt, you know, this is hard. This is hard to be a disciple in this situation. So John writes this letter, and particularly this story that we're going to read today addresses that difficulty. Sixty years later is, is when this story occurred, from the time that John penned it to the time it actually happened. Sixty years. And yet, the way that John writes this story, the kind of detail he gives, it's like it just happened. So let's, let's look at the text together. And, and the, the story itself is almost a sermon. And, it, and, and Jesus has had quite a day, by the way. This is the same day, probably, that the woman that was caught in adultery, remember that big controversy where she was brought to him and he said that amazing statement, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. And then they have this big controversy about who he is, and then he says this, Barn burner before Abraham was, I am. So it's been quite a day already. They're, and, and they're picking up stones to stone him. And, 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 and he somehow miraculously escapes. So you'd think, you know, if it was me, I'd say, you know, that's been a day's work. I'm, I'm going to bed, right? <laughs> He's not done yet. I love this story. It says, as he went along... Now, he's just coming out of the temple, and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, why would they ask a question like that? Well, first of all, I love the fact that he sees a blind man. He sees the man. So many of Jesus' miracles are preceded by that phrase, he saw them. And it was common for the blind and the lame to lay by the temple gates as people went in and out because they would sit there and panhandle. They would beg for alms. And... Why would the disciples ask this outrageous question? I mean, it seems outrageous in our day. But it's a congenital disease that a man inherits blindness. There was a common belief back in those days that it, 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 it was this attempt to reconcile God is good with evil. God is good, but bad things are happening. It can't be God's fault... So it must be the person's fault. It's called theodicy. It's always been that tension of how can we reconcile that God is a good God with evil existing in our world. This person is created in the image of God and so God isn't blind. So why is he blind? Well, it must be his parents. Or, believe it or not, they actually believed that a child could sin in the womb. How evil is that? Uh, they believed that, some of them believed that, kind of like reincarnation, they believed that pre-existing spirits had sinned 
and then entered a body and that body was judged because of pre-existing sin. So that's why they asked this crazy question. Who sinned? There's something wrong with me. It must be my fault. Can you imagine having to live your whole life? I don't know how old he was, 30 years? He's never seen the light of day. And every day, not only is he suffering the blindness, but he has to live under the stigma that somehow it's his fault or his parents' fault. They have to suffer the anguish of seeing their child and feel like it's something they did. It's their fault. So what's Jesus' response to this? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Whew, well, that's a relief, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So on one hand, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief that the parents and the man are off the hook, but then you kind of go, how exploitive is that? That God would actually allow this so that his works would be revealed? Well, that sounds exploitive. That sounds like the worst kind of uh, exploitation. To make a man suffer blindness for 30 years so that he can now be part of a show that shows that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, part of the problem with this is the translation. I'm reading from the NIV, and there's a problem of translation and punctuation. And I want to show you the New American Standard Bible, which is actually more of a word-for-word -word translation of the Greek. The New American Bible says like this. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man. Now you notice there, see those italics? What does that mean? They're added. That's right. Because it's not just translation. How many have ever tried to use Google Translate? How many know it doesn't work? Because it's, it's translating words, but it's not translating meaning. Right? And that's what's happening here. So, so the translators have to then interpret what's the meaning. So they've added these words to try to make sense. But what happens if you take those words out? Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents, semicolon, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, that's a little better, but it's still a problem. So we have another issue, and it's called punctuation. Did you know that punctuation is always at the discretion of the translators? It's not in the Greek. It's not obvious all the time. And there's a real discretional uh, action that occurs here by the translators that I think distorts uh, the meaning of this text. And I do have support from this. I did some reading on this. So what happens if we change that semicolon to a period? And what happens if we change that period to a comma? What happens with the meaning? Let's read it again now. Jesus answered, Neither this man sinned nor his parents. Period. Shit happens. But, thought you might need to get woken up a little bit. But, so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. 
Do you see how the meaning changes? Neither this man sinned, nor his parents, period. But so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. So what, Jesus, what is Jesus saying? Evil exists. Crap happens. Evil occurs. There is cosmic evil due to the fall that is beyond explanation. It's beyond theolo theological argument. I can't, I have no explanation why an innocent mom who's riding her bike across the new Westminster, or the Westminster Bridge in London this week, going to pick up her children from school, is mowed down by a terrorist car. And her life is taken away. It doesn't make any sense. Don't give me an explanation for that. Other than the fact that evil exists. So Jesus says it happens. Shit happens. I, I, I can imagine standing before Jesus and him asking me, Gordy, were you putting words in my mouth? <laughs> uh, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, he says we must work. Who's we? Who's we? Who's Jesus talking about here? Him and us. So he's saying, listen, it's an evil world. There's a lot of pain, but it's an opportunity to show that God is real. It's an opportunity to alleviate pain, to alleviate suffering, to show that God is real, to show compassion, to show healing. God is still alive and greater than all the evil. But we must work while it is day. What does day mean? What's day? You are in daytime right now, but the shadows are lengthening. We talked about it in our last song in the worship set. The shadows are lengthening. Daytime is becoming nighttime. What's nighttime? It's when we die, right? It's this lifetime that we have this opportunity to alleviate evil, to alleviate suffering. To show the works of God. Stuff happens. That's the Christian way of saying it. Stuff happens. But let's do the works of God as long as it is day because the night's coming. You and I are night's coming. I'm 59 years old. I'm going to hit 60 in, in a few months. The shadows are getting a bit longer. The limbs don't quite move as quickly. We have an opportunity now in this small moment, to do the works of him who sent us. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. While you and I are in the world, we're the light of the world because the light of the world is living in us. So after saying this, let's move on with our story. He spit on the ground. I don't know if the blind man saw this, but he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. Interesting, eh? Sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, can you imagine? You're blind. You've never seen light. And this man with an authority that you cannot describe takes some mud and rubs it on your eyes. And with an authority you can't quite explain and with a compassion, he says to you, go and wash in the pool. Well, first of all, you're blind. 
How are you going to get there? I think he had to get help. I think he, he said, there's a man, a rabbi, I think, I think he told me that I have to go wash at the pool of Siloam. Can you help me get there? Now, what is that? That's the pool of Siloam. It's still there today. It's in Jerusalem. Same pool. Kathleen and I have seen it. It's that same pool. Can you believe that? So he's, he's, he's stumbling and he's, he's, he's walking and he's got mud. He must look ridiculous. And it's humbling, right? Adults is that sense of wonder. And this guy's got this childlike wonder about life. Restored to him with his vision. He's just so blown away. So he probably got attention, right? Like everybody's going, what's that dude like that for? I mean, it's just a regular day. What's the matter with him? It's just an ordinary sun and blue sky. What are you all? <laughs> it's just a flower, right? It's just a bird. Yeah. Can you imagine seeing his mom's face for the first time? Totally. So, so here's what happens. His neighbors notice it. And see, they just known him as a panhandler. They, they'd labeled him. He had a label, drug addict, mentally ill, homeless person, whatever. He had a label. They'd only seen the label. Jesus saw the person. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the guy. How then were your eyes open, they asked. Now, what's happening here is this remarkable thing that happens in us when the data we're receiving con conflicts with our belief system. Right? So we all have this grid, this belief system of what we assume is, is true and real. So when all of a sudden the data comes that's different... Uh, there, there's all kinds of contortions our brain goes through. Uh, I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago in the Vancouver Sun. Does anybody know what the news story of the year was last year? What was the news story? Yeah, it's, it's related to Trump, but not quite, believe it or not. It's related to him. Fake news. That was the news story of the year last year. Fake news, right? So... Um, so this article um, talks about how that we as human beings are wired so that if fake news comes and it agrees with our belief and our worldview, we believe it, even if it's totally false. And, and if, a lot of that is now filtered through the Internet and Facebook and all that. And if it's not true, if, 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 an, if a true story comes that is, not, uh, 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 that is not according to our belief system, we don't believe it. And they did this study to prove that, which is amazing. And they, they called it an echo chamber, where we're living in an echo chamber. And all we do is we just absorb what we agree with. And we reject what we don't agree with. Scary times. 
I was reading this article. I, there's the one guy posted this, this article that I went, whoa, that's really out. That's amazing. It, like it was all these experts that were saying blah, blah, blah. And, I, and, I, and the guy that posted it was a very credible guy. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's, a, very, he's a vineyard pastor. Well, maybe that's not so credible. But. And um, so one of, somebody posted and said, well, here's what Snopes says. How many have heard of Snopes? Yeah, Snopes is, is, is supposed to be a, a platform that exposes fake news. And uh, so Snopes showed that the article had been, that, that there was partial truth, but it had been manipulated and designed to, 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 to create spin on the conclusions of the article. Well, I thought, oh, okay, well, that explains why, you know. And then, and then somebody else had, they posted a platform that exposes Snopes. Snopes has their own agenda. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh. I, I thought, I don't believe anything anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of what you're tempted to do, right? And, uh, and, and so, but it's not a problem that's just started in our time. I think just the existence of the Internet and social media has, has made it more, more, us more aware of it. But that's what's happening, is these people are getting data that all they've known all their life is this guy blind. And they've never seen a blind guy healed. They've never seen a panhandler stop panhandling and, you know, start to make a living and get on his feet. And they've never seen that. And so their data is going, this does not com compute. So he replied, the man they called Jesus uh, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and washed. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So they brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now John comments on that for a reason. Because it's going to, again, conflict with data that people have. The data that they're getting, rather, is going to conflict with their belief system. Verse 15, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. So he said it again. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. So again, this is conflicting with data. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You're not supposed to make mud on Sabbath. I'm not kidding you. There's one of their laws that you don't make mud on Sabbath. Poor kids can't even do mud pies on Sabbath. And they also had a belief that if a person healed on the Sabbath, they were not from God. But others, and this was of the Pharisees, this is the Sanhedrin. Remember the group that Nicodemus was a part of? But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So what's happening? The data that they're getting conflicts with their belief system. So again, they turned to the blind man. And they said, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Now that's quite a statement because what the blind man is doing is unreservedly saying, he didn't know fully who Jesus was yet, but he's unreservedly declaring, this guy's from God. 
This, this is not the devil. This is not some human... Con- this was God. This is what God looks like to me. This is what I've been told God is like. This has God's fingerprints on it. So that's quite a statement. Did you know our world is not stupid? They know what God's fingerprints look like. And when those who claim to represent God look differently than that, they can smell it out like that. He said he's a prophet. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? So, first of all, maybe it's not the same guy. Then, the, the guy that healed you is not from God, but he insists that he is. Well, maybe he's, he's just crazy. Let's ask his parents. Let's get some witnesses in here. This, something wrong. It's got to be a hoax. We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or open his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. There's quite a story going on here, eh? A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered very lovingly and patiently, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. They're still giving him that insult. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Kicked him out. So, John's writing this to disciples 60 years later who are suffering the same thing as this blind man did. You get that? They've been rejected by their synagogues, rejected by their faith communities as being heretics. And the reason they are suffering that is because they've encountered Jesus in a way that's outside the box. They've encountered God in a way that doesn't fit with all of their theological grid. Now, let me, let me say this. Theological conservatives and theological progressives need each other. Conservatives have a concern about not becoming uh, uh, unmoored. We, we need moorings. We need anchors for our faith. We don't, 
we don't want to get to this thing, well, anything goes. I was out worshiping a tree today and I really experienced God. Right? We don't want to, we don't want to, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God became human, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he lived and died and rose again, and that we need a savior, that we need God's grace to save us. We, these are foundational things. So, so it's important to hold to those. And sometimes when we start eroding away and questioning scripture, it can erode our foundation, our sense of security about what's right or true. Without, but we're, so un, we're not self-aware. We don't recognize that most of us say, well, I just want to believe what the Bible says. And yet there's 45,000 interpretations of what the Bible says and what it means, what it means for us. And that requires humility and theological discourse and, and, and listening to one another and talking to one another and praying to one another. And then asking each other if there's experience, like the blind man. How did you encounter God? What happened? And you hear how he encountered God and then you go back to Scripture and you discern and you go, does that have God's fingerprints on it? Does that sound like God? So it, it, it requires that kind of exercise for us. But because God is always moving, he's always working, his heart is missional for every last person on earth, he's going to color outside our theological lines over and over and over again. You can be guaranteed of it. And we saw it in the Bible. We saw it in the New Testament. So this is so tender. Why do the, the church fathers and mothers put the Lord shepherd as the first reading? Why does this story happen just before John 10, which is the story of the Good Shepherd, which doesn't end, by the way, that Jesus goes right into that discourse on the Good Shepherd, that he's the Good Shepherd, right after this story. It doesn't break, it doesn't take a sleep. He goes right into that sermon. Jesus heard, this is some, this got to be the most tender scripture. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found them, what does that imply? He found them. He went looking for them. Just feel that for a sec, can you? Just sense that. Just savor that. Jesus heard that he got kicked out. And he went looking for them. What does it mean to you to know that whatever lostness or rejection or disenfranchisement or marginalization that you might feel right now, he's looking He's pursuing you. Isn't that amazing? And he found him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Or with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The response of faith at that point was no longer going to the pool of Siloam, putting mud in his eyes. But I think that was a defining metaphor for him for the rest of his life. Even if I look foolish, even if I look silly, I'm going to be a worshipper because I know it's true. I know he's real. I know I've been touched. One thing I know, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. That's what he said earlier. But one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. But now he saw Jesus, and he worships. Jesus said, 
for judgment I've come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I call this self-awareness and the lack thereof. Jesus said, it's for judgment that I came into the world so that the blind will see. When Jesus put the mud on that man's eyes and asked him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, that man knew he was blind. He knew he needed mercy. He knew he needed help. And he stumbles his way with help, probably getting help. Take me to the pool. Can you lead me? Can you take me by the arm? Can you lead me? And Jesus said, those are the ones he came to heal. The problem with the Pharisees is they had the same blindness, worse than that man, a worse blindness, which wasn't a problem. The problem was they didn't know it. They didn't know it. I was at a, a support group for family members of drug addicts a number of years ago. It was a part of a regular weekly parents and family members support group. There's a lovely grandma in the group who looked at me as I told about my first grandchild that had arrived in the world. And she came over to me and she said, you know what's so amazing about grandkids or grandparents, she said, is they see the children. They see them. And the children know that the grandparents see them. They know they're being watched. Parents, they're so busy parenting. But grandparents offer that gift. That's why I think God is father, he's mother, he's grandfather, he's grandmother, he's, ever, he's that beautiful auntie or uncle that showed you his heart. That's what God is to you. And as we shared, you say, well, Gordy, well, why were you in that support group? Well, I was in that support group because I realized that my family member's addiction... Yeah, that was a concern, but it showed me my own addiction. I had an addiction that I had stuff. And it's so easy when someone is marginalized, is blind, is going through stuff to say, oh, they're the problem. But what's God showing you about yourself? What beat, uh, as you're attentive to your own heart. And so many times I've had to do a face plant just to show me afresh my own blindness. So those points in our lives that seem to be the source of the greatest opposition, think about what those obstacles are to your discipleship that we talked about a bit earlier. Distress, resistance that you're experiencing. Is it possible that they're actually doorways to encounter Jesus on a deeper level? as we open ourselves to his initiative towards us. He's looking for you. John said, we don't, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. We were not seeking, we were sought. We were not finding, we were found. We didn't see, we were first seen. His initiative, he's the shepherd. 
and as we open ourselves. And so John's, John's message, John's message to his, his community is, is, is you think that the barrier to your discipleship is all this opposition you're going through and your suffering and your pain. But he said the barrier, the barrier, Some, some, this is a story from the, the desert uh, fathers and mothers. I've been reading a lot of these sayings from the desert. And this, they, these disciples came to see the monk. And they said to him, you know, what's, what's the greatest barrier to knowing God and encountering God? And he said the greatest barrier is believing there is one. They said, you mean, you mean that we and God are one? He said, no, 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 no. Not one. Not two. Just like the sun and the sunlight are not one, but not two. Just like the ocean and the wave is not one, but it's not two. Just like a song and a melody are not one, but they're not two. So you and God are not one. You're not two. There's no barrier. No barrier. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Would you come and show us that those points of resistance and obstacles and hindrance that we see as hindrances to our discipleship? Lord, today I pray for my sisters and brothers, for each of us who are struggling with these different points. We're like the psalmist. We go, oh, if only I was over here or somewhere else or in a monastery or if I, could, if I could just have different circumstances, then I could really follow you. Lord, would you just come at those points and show us that you're pursuing us. You're looking for us. You're seeking us. And may we be found by you. In Jesus' name.